Good morning to everyone. It's great to see each of you here this Lord's Day. I invite you to turn with me to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Uh, Rick mentioned a few moments ago that uh, we have a member's course beginning in a couple of Sundays from now, our foundations class. We offer it twice a year uh, in January and in September. And so a number of people went through the course back in January. I think it wrapped up sometime in March. And at the conclusion of our membership course, many of you already know this, you need to fill in a, a profile, complete a questionnaire, sign a couple of things. And um, that normally happens fairly quickly. But some people take their sweet time. And, well, we're not going to judge, but we do tease. And uh, there's one couple in particular who took their sweet time. Uh, but it is my privilege anyway to finally introduce to you uh, David and Debbie Ramsey uh, and to receive them into fellowship here at Grace Community Church. So why don't you stand up, folks? There you are. Better late than never. Also, while we're speaking of membership, many of you, most of you know Nicole Popejoy. Um, was here for many years, and then a few years ago, made her way up to Fort Worth and was a member at the, the Village Church there in Fort Worth. She has recently relocated back here to, to Glenrose, and so we're also receiving Nicole into membership here this day as well. So Nicole, you stand up as well. Wave to everybody. Thank you. Wonderful. And so it is a great joy to welcome these ones as members and this local expression of the body of Christ, a Grace Community Church. You found 1 Corinthians? I hope so by now. Uh, we took a little break last Sunday. Andre Bay was with us, the entire Bay family. I never want to hear you complain about my accent again. I'll say this for the benefit of the Condis. It is an acquired taste, isn't it? I'm joking. I love the South African accent, but it is different. But for those who have complained of my accent, never to me, but I'm sure you have behind my back, I, I, it stops right now. But it was great to have the Bay family with us, a real treat, and it was a, a delight to hear Andre proclaim God's word and take us to the book of Zephaniah. But today, we're back on track. We return to 1 Corinthians, and I ask you to follow along as I begin reading in the first chapter, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, Boast in the Lord. All the way back with me to verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. From verse 12 to verse 16, he describes this quarreling in some detail, and it becomes quickly apparent that what is transpiring in the church at Corinth reflects the greater culture. The Corinthian culture, the Roman culture, the Latin culture for that matter, placed great emphasis upon influence and social status. Status derived from one's birth, status derived from one's wealth, power, influence, whatever the case may be. This kind of thinking was infiltrating the church at Corinth, and some at Corinth were adopting this sort of thinking as it relates to status and influence, and they were identifying themselves with certain leaders in the church. The leaders did not encourage this kind of thinking. The leaders did not set them up in this kind of way, but some of the believers, it seems to be very many of the believers in the church at Corinth, had fallen into this erroneous way of thinking that I want some sort of status in the church and the way to achieve that status is to identify myself with Paul, remind everybody that, well, Paul baptized me. Ooh, that makes me special. Or is to remind myself that I met Peter in some other context, some other place, some other time. Ooh, I I know Peter. Or it is to remind everyone and make sure everybody knows that I'm a big fan of Apollos who speaks eloquently, very gifted when it comes to rhetoric and all of the literary devices of the age, and I'm right into that, and therefore by name-dropping and associating with him, somehow, somehow that elevates me, my status, in the eyes of my brothers and sisters. This is what's going on in the Church of Corinth. And obviously it is leading to quarreling, it is leading to divisions. And so beginning in verse 17, still in chapter 1, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 21, Paul speaks to this issue. He devotes a significant amount of space, doesn't he? Which tells us what? Must be a pretty serious issue. Uh, This is really close to dividing the church at Corinth. Uh, Big problems are on the horizon. And so Paul feels burdened. He senses the need that he needs to speak to this issue directly. And so he does so again from chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 21. And what he is seeking to demonstrate is simply this. My friends, my brothers and sisters, this quarreling and these divisions that have arisen Because you are seeking this kind of social influence or status, this sort of one-upmanship, I want you to understand that you are acting this way, you are behaving this way, because you have forgotten who you are in Christ Jesus. That's all there is to it. You have forgotten what it means in the language of verse 9 to be called by God into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. You have forgotten, really, what it means to believe the gospel to understand it, and to apply it as you ought. And so he takes him on this rather lengthy journey in which he seeks to rectify, correct their thinking. And you've been staring at it on the screen behind me now for a few moments. There's his outline. That's what he does. He makes six major points. He reminds them, firstly, how God saves. That's what we considered a couple Sundays ago. Secondly, who God saves. 
Those are the verses we read a few moments ago that we're going to consider in detail today. How I preach next week, what I preach the week after that, how we minister. I can't make any promises except to say it's in the future. And why we minister. And then finally, a concluding word. There it goes. Norm, you can take that slide away. Apparently, there have been some complaints that the slides have not been up there long enough. It's all a question of perspective, folks. Maybe you're not writing quickly enough, but there it is. If you did not get that, feel free to email me, and I would be so happy with the click of a button to reply and attach that to that email, and there you'll have it before you. But you see what Paul is doing. You get your mind around it. And you see where we are now in his thought flow as he unpacks his central argument addressing this problem plaguing the church at Corinth. Verse 26 then, something of a commandment really, an affirmation, consider your calling. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a time out. I want you to get alone. And I want you to think about, I want you to meditate upon uh, what it means to be called by God. And if you think on it, and not merely think on it cognitively, but embrace it and apply it, you will begin to appreciate again who you are in Christ Jesus. And in that appreciation, you will find then the remedy for these divisions and this quarreling among you. And so that's the approach we're going to take to verses 26 through 31. We're going to consider our calling. And Paul wants us to get three things. All right? Very simple. Firstly, he wants us to understand the nature of, of our calling. Go all the way back to verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called. There's the same word, called to be saints. Go with me now to verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is a theme, it is a subject that looms large not only in this epistle, but just about all of Paul's epistles. Understand that in Scripture, there are how many calls? There are two calls, and we need to differentiate between the two. There is the first call, which is what? The proclamation of the gospel by the preacher. It's what I'm doing right now. I am calling. I am opening up God's Word. I am seeking to explain God's Word, apply God's Word, and calling, calling, each of us to do what? Respond. And so it's something that happens external, external to us. It's happening right now. You're hearing my voice, and it is something that is heard externally, audibly, with the ear. We might call this the general call. It is an invitation. Uh, we can sum it up beautifully in the words of the Lord Jesus. Whosoever will come unto me. It is a general call. But there is secondly in Scripture what? 
a special call. It is not the mere proclamation of the word by the preacher. It is the application of the word by the Spirit. It isn't heard merely with the ear. It is heard and embraced in the soul. And so we go, for example, to Acts chapter 17, and we read of a woman named Lydia, and she hears Peter preaching. And what do we read there in Acts 17? The Lord opened her heart. What? To understand the things spoken. There you have both the general call, words spoken audibly, the proclamation of the word, And there you have a special call. Something actually happened internally in that woman. God opened her heart to understand and to receive what was said. That is the special call. It's nature. Here it is in a statement. The call of God, the special call of God, is the going forth of God's transforming power, whereby he draws Hardened sinners to himself. It is the going forth of God's transforming power. It is the spirit of God accompanying the foolishness of preaching. What is heard audibly. Sovereignly opening the mind, giving eyes to see. Softening the heart, the will to receive whereby hardened sinners come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. So Friday morning, doesn't often happen. She's usually up at the crack of dawn, but Friday morning, Emma was fast asleep in bed, and so up the stairs I went, opened her door, and I called her name. Emma, time to get up. And she woke up. Now here's what didn't happen. Emma wasn't lying there sleeping, heard my call, and then thought to herself, will I wake up or won't I wake up? Hmm, what decision will I make in this moment of time? No, it was my call that woke her up. That's the way it works, folks. The call to come unto Christ Jesus goes out to all. It is a general call. Oh, but this special call whereby God sovereignly works in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, giving eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive and welcome and believe. Oh, it is the going forth of his transforming power. That's its nature. Notice, secondly, its object in our text, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Pick out the threefold description. Not many of you, here's the first, were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful or strong. That's the second description. Not many were of, here's the third, noble birth. Oh, but consider your calling. I need to pause here. I'm so thankful. Bruce, Bruce London came up to me this morning and he reminded me, Stephen, do you remember Queen Victoria? Do you remember Queen Victoria? And do you remember that she was saved by the letter M? 
say, I'd forgotten all about this. I'm so glad he reminded me. She was saved by the letter M, verse 26, does not say, consider your calling, brothers. Not any of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not any were powerful. Not any were of noble birth, but not many. She was of noble birth. She was indeed powerful, and yet the Lord saved her. The point here is not that the Lord does not save people out of these three categories. The point is that the Lord does not save many from these three categories. He does not save many who are wise according to the worldly standards. He does not save many who are powerful according to worldly standards. He does not save many who are of noble birth. But, verse 27, but, extremely important, drawing a contrast, honing in now directly on the Corinthian church, God chose, don't be offended, he chose what is foolish in the world. We're fools, folks. To do what? To shame the wise. Notice the second description. He chose what is weak in the world. To shame the strong. Into verse 28. He chose what is low and despised in the world. The object of this call. We understand its nature. The going forth of God's transforming power whereby he sovereignly calls hardened sinners to himself. And we now recognize the object of this call that not many wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth ever hear this call. But God delights to call who? The foolish, the weak, the low and the despised. Here's the third thing I want us to understand concerning this call. It's purpose. He's already alluded to it in verse 27. He chose what is foolish to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. Verse 28, he chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. I hope you're getting this. He chose nobodies, is what he's saying to the church in Corinth. He chose nobodies. He chose zeros. Will I give you another word? He chose losers. That's what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. And such are you, is what he's saying to the church at Corinth. Remember who you are. Even he chose things that are not nobodies, losers. Why? To bring to nothing things that are. To shame the world. To shame all that the world values, esteems, and holds dear. Why? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the nature of his call, the object of his call, and the purpose why he calls the foolish, the weak, and the low. Here's the first purpose again. Verse 29. So that no one can boast in his presence. But there's a second reason going into verse 30. He, that is God, is the source of your life. Not you. You're not the source of anything. God has done everything. It was an act of creation. It was the going forth of his power. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. And God made Christ what unto us? He made him our wisdom 
and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Here's the second purpose, therefore. The first purpose, remember, so that we might not boast before God, but here that we might boast in God. Verse 31, therefore, as it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All right, there you got it. You got the text? That's it. That's all Paul is doing. Consider your calling. Understand its nature. You got it? Check it off. Understand its object, however it might make you squirm a little bit and make you feel uncomfortable. Understand who you are. And thirdly, understand its purpose. Now, take the text and put it in its greater context. What is Paul dealing with in the greater context? Quarreling and divisions arising from what? People who are pursuing what? Influence or status on the basis of what? Power and worldly wisdom and nobility and influence and all of these things. All of these values have infiltrated the church at Corinth. This is the idol of the age. And now the believers at Corinth, having forgotten who they are in Christ, they are now prostrating themselves before this cultural idol. And they are absorbing and adopting precisely the same manner of thinking. They are now judging one another. They are now seeking to lord it over one another. They are now seeking this kind of influence, this kind of power that resides in these identifiable markers. And what's Paul's point? Can I be blunt? I'll be blunt. What foolishness. It makes absolutely no sense. You've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten, firstly, how God saves. He saved you through the utter foolishness of preaching. And you've forgotten who God saves. Not many wise. You can count them on one hand in the church there at Corinth. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. But those who in the world's eyes are foolish, weak, low, and despised. Oh, you've forgotten this, my brothers and sisters. You've forgotten who you are. And you have forgotten how God has saved you. And you have forgotten, most of all, who you now are by virtue of your union with Christ. That God has made Christ unto you, what? Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Oh, a big therefore. Let the one who boasts, please show some common sense. This is what Paul is saying in effect. And boast in the Lord. We have no reason to boast. That is the text. That is the context. And I want to painstakingly, maybe not so painstakingly, we'll see, make sure that we are getting it. And so I have summed it up for you in the sermon notes. If you don't have the notes open, I encourage you to open there in the worship guide. And more or less, right there in the middle of the page, you will see five <laughs> statements. And I'm going to encourage you to add a sixth. You don't need to write them down. They're all there written out for you. You're going to have to add the sixth is all, okay? 
five statements, five propositions that summarize Paul's argument in these verses. Here's number one. It's right there in the sermon notes. God chose us. Okay? I'm speaking to Christians. I'm speaking to disciples of Christ. I'm speaking to followers of Christ. I'm speaking to believers. I have a few comments for unbelievers in a few moments. But for now, I am speaking to Christians. God chose us. Secondly, God called us. We're now very clear on the nature of the call, the object of the call, and the purpose of the call. Thirdly, God put us, us, in Christ. Fourthly, we are all that Christ is. He made him unto us, again, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And the fifth point, none of this depends on us who are the foolish, the weak, the low, and the despised. You got it. Now here's a sixth statement to add, which really then gets to the heart of Paul's entire train of thought in these verses. God chose us. God called us. God put us in Christ. We are all that Christ is. None of this depends on us. Number six, we need to act like it. That's it. We need to act like it. We need to heed Paul's command back in verse 26. Consider your calling. Consider the gospel. Consider who you are in Christ Jesus. Consider God's sovereign grace in your salvation. Consider the fact that salvation is apart from any human merit. Consider the fact that no one on that day will be able to boast before God. Well, God, I understand why you chose me. I was of noble birth. I understand why you called me because I'm a fairly significant, influential person and you wanted me on your team. I understand why you love me and you saved me. Well, it's because I, I was extremely influential in the society and the day and age in which I live. None of it, none of it, none of it. No one will stand before God on the judgment day able to claim anything regarding themselves as the cause for which they stand there saved in the sight of God. No, we will boast in one and in one alone, God and his mercy toward us in Christ Jesus. We are to consider our calling. Oh, we need to consider our calling at all times. And in the time remaining, I want to give you seven particular instances in which we here at GCC need desperately to remember and consider our calling. Are you ready? Six blanks in the sermon notes. I have seven points. You figure it out and do the math yourself. Number one, we need to consider our calling. Obviously, in the light of our text, when we quarrel, when we quarrel, are you a quarreling person, a quarrelsome person? I am not asking, be careful. I am not asking if there are ever times you disagree with people. It is possible to disagree without quarreling. Disagreeing and quarreling are two entirely different things. 
Paul was, has no problem with disagreement. At times, disagreement is absolutely necessary and something that is to be worked out and worked through. What Paul is opposing here is quarreling. James makes it clear by asking what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, disagreements can exist, but quarreling arises from what? Evil desires, misguided, misplaced passions. And so I'll ask you directly, this day, are you quarreling with your spouse? Not asking if you have a disagreement over such and such. That happens all the time, doesn't it? I'm asking you very specifically, are you quarreling with your spouse? Are you quarreling with your kids? Quarreling with a sibling? Quarreling with a mother-in-law, father-in-law, mother, father, uncle? Are you quarreling with your brothers and sisters in Christ? All right, one or two perhaps. What's the answer? I've already given it to you. God chose us, God called us, God put us in Christ. We are all that Christ is. None of this depends on us. Act like it. There you go. There is the remedy for quarreling. Here's the second point of application. We need to consider our calling. When, again, in the light of the context of 1 Corinthians 1, we are tempted to pursue status according to culturally defined values. And we are tempted. Our world... Our culture absolutely worships, it worships beauty, wealth, prestige, influence, power, and status. This is our world's idol. It is. It is at the foundation of just about everything. It is the way it functions, regrettably, as Christians. We often succumb to the same value system. We often find ourselves, if we are not vigilant, prostrating ourselves before the same idol. What's the solution? I've already given it to you, and I'm going to remind you throughout the remainder of this morning, God chose us. God called us. God put us in Christ. We are all that Christ is. None of this depends on us. We need to act like it and mortify those culturally defined values when they rear their ugly heads in our own lives. Third point of application. We need to consider our calling when we seek an identity that sets us over others. When we seek an identity that sets us over others. We often, very often, give this some thought, uh, we often gravitate to causes and movements, ideologies, teams, jobs, tribes, and on and on the list goes. And we gravitate to these things because we use them to make ourselves feel good. Uh, through them, identifying with these things, championing these things, uh, we feel good about ourselves. Subsequently, as a result, we become fierce defenders of these things because we attach our self-worth, our self-value, and our identity to them. And when we attach our spirituality to these things, the next step is obvious. 
We construct walls because we accept only those who share our identity. It happens all the time, and it happens all the time without even thinking about it. What is the solution? We need to consider our calling. God chose us. He called us. He put us in Christ. We are all that Christ is. None of it depends on us. And we need to act like it. It is the starting point in our relationships, all of our relationships. Here's the fourth point of application. We need to consider our calling when we succumb to debilitating fears and anxieties. Succumb, feel overwhelmed by debilitating fears and anxieties. I want to go down one road in particular. Here it is. And it may not apply to very many here, but it may apply to some. And I pray by the Spirit of God, um, he'll impart wisdom from above. Here's the question. And again, remember, I'm speaking to Christians. Um, Do past experiences define you? It's a good question. Do past experiences define you? Abuse. Divorce, rejection, abandonment, failure. Are these past experience, experiences that in the present shape and determine your identity? Who you are. Shape and determine, therefore, your identity attitudes, dreams, and aspirations. Shape and determine your relationships. Well, this this is a probing question. It's a fascinating question on one hand, and it's an extremely pastoral question on the other, because we live in a day, a day unlike any in many ways in the history of mankind, but we live in a day in which it is all about identifying on a personal level and a societal level your victimhood. And it is your victimhood that will define you. And it is your victimhood it will be the lens through which you view life. It is your victimhood through which you will treat your spouse, your kids, those who are close to you. It is your victimhood that will determine your responses, your reactions, your attitudes. And those sort of past experiences are terrible, aren't they? They are. I'm not minimizing it. But I do want us to get this. Christian, believer, the Bible never describes you as a victim. Never, never, ever describes you as a victim. Sure does describe you as a sinner. The Bible never tells you your biggest problem is you're a victim and you need to come to grips with your victimhood and seek to triumph over your victimhood. The Bible tells you you're a sinner and your greatest need is you need to be reconciled to the living God. And being reconciled to the living God, your identity is completely transformed. Your identity is no longer based on past experiences. Your identity is based on who you are in Christ Jesus. He chose you. He called you. He put you in Christ. You are all that Christ is. None of it depended on you. Act like it. 
That is the identity which forms the basis of our thinking and our attitudes and our relationships, our aspirations, our dreams, our responses, everything as we go through life. It is who we are in Christ Jesus. Here's the fifth point of application. Can you handle a few more? Number five, we need to consider our calling when we struggle to suppress self-love. Does self-love control you? The desire for self-protection, the desire for self-gratification, the desire for self-satisfaction. Do you struggle? Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Do you struggle with any of these desires? I must control that situation. I must control, resolve that situation. I must keep the peace at all costs. I have a right to feel good and feel secure. I have a right to a carefree life. I have a right to be respected praised and affirmed by others. I have a right to be well and to stay well. And we could go on and on and on and on. The problem with all of these is what? They are all defined by love of self. Therefore, they are all wrong desires. And wrong desires are ultimately self-focused And because they are the opposite of what God wants, they ultimately lead to what? All sorts of fear, anxiety, worry, mistrust. What is the remedy? God chose us. God called us. God put us in Christ. We are all that Christ is. None of this depends on me. Now I need to act like it, which means what? It's not about what I want doesn't even factor into it. It is completely irrelevant to the equation. It is all about what? God wants. It is the death of self and the exaltation of God. Here's number six. We need to consider our calling when we wonder how God could ever use us. This will not be chicken soup for the soul. Let me just state that right at the outset. We need to consider our calling when we wonder how God could ever use us. Let me open by stating, the goal of psychology is not the goal of the gospel. They are completely antithetical. They are polar opposites. The goal of psychology is to empower the individual. The goal of psychology is to convince us of how good and gifted we are. The goal of psychology is to convince us of how special and valuable we are. That is not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is simply this, friends. It's to show us that we are nothing outside of Christ. And we are everything in Christ. That is the goal of the gospel. And it is a remedy when we wonder how God could ever use us. We wonder how God could ever put up with us. We were reminded last Sunday, were we not, of a tremendous truth out of Zephaniah 3, that in Christ, God rejoices over us with gladness. In Christ, God exalts over us with loud singing. 
And this God who delights in us, in Christ, delights to use us. He delights to glorify himself through our weakness. He delighted to use a lad by the name of David to defeat Goliath. He delighted to use Gideon and his several hundred men rather than the entire armies of Israel. Why? Because he delighted to glorify himself in weakness. He delighted to use Moses, who's just spent 40 years with a bunch of sheep in the wilderness doing basically what? Nothing of any eternal consequence. Why? Because he delights to magnify his glory in weakness. Hear these words, write them down, take them to heart. We can never be too small for God to use us. We can, however, be too big. It's truth. We can never be too small for God to use us. But we can most certainly be too big. Here's number seven, the last one. We need to consider our calling when we feel like a bone out of joint. And we feel like a bone out of joint. Why? Because we've sinned. We're struggling with restless nights. We're struggling with frayed nerves. We're struggling with mood swings. We're suffering from a fallen countenance, a lack of joy and peace. We're suffering from a disinterest in prayer and study. We're suffering from an unwillingness to get close to others for fear of discovery and all of these things. If we would just stop and take stock, they are screaming in our ears that all is not well with the soul. There's a reason you're like this. And the reason is this is a troubled conscience. As a Christian, the spirit of God will not let you go. And because of unconfessed sin, because of present obstinacy, because of unplaced future anxiety and worry, we find ourselves walking around like a bone out of jo- joint. I'm thinking a little bit of Mike. Mike's walking around right without a shoulder, isn't he? Without a shoulder. Psalm comes walking in here this morning. I'm thinking, boy, I can guess what his greatest fear is. His greatest fear is that someone must come up behind him and just slap him on the shoulder and say, how's it going? All right? How he is protecting that thing. How many of us spiritually walking around like that, walking around like a bone out of joint, spiritually all is not well, arising from a pricked, a troubled conscience because of our unwillingness to deal with sin in our lives. Well, what is it we need to hear? Here's what you need to hear. God chose us. He chose us. Set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. He called us sovereignly. The transforming power whereby he drew us, a hardened sinner to himself. He put us in Christ. Made us one with him. Implanted us into Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are now all that Christ is. On the judgment day, we will stand before God and God will see us in Christ Jesus and God will accept us not for what we have done, but for what Christ has done. None of this depends on us. And now what do we do? We need to act like it. 
which means what? Confessing our sin. There we have the motivation to mortify our sin. There we have all the impetus we need to get serious about our sin. That God has bestowed something so undeservedly upon us. That God has so highly exalted us in Christ Jesus. That God has imparted to us such a blessed hope. And from these great realities and the reality of his unchanging love for his people in Christ Jesus, we discover all the motivation we need as we love him who first loved us by doing what? By forsaking that which is so repugnant in his sight, our sin. And we come to him with a full knowledge, do we not, that if we confess our sins, oh, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are my seven points of application for believers. I said a long time ago I had a word for unbelievers, and here it is as we wrap up, as we conclude. Very simply, this text and all that we've considered, what is my word to you? It's found all the way back in verse 2. Look at what we read there. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, notice the next phrase, with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ, call upon the name of the Lord. Paul tells us in his epistle to the Romans that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He tells us there too in his epistle to the Romans that if we confess, right, Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Oh, to call upon the name of the Lord is to look away from ourselves. It is to simply acknowledge that in me there is nothing pleasing in God's sight. I am a sinner in God's sight. I am a rebel in God's sight. This is the starting point. And recognizing these truths about ourselves, it is looking away from ourselves to his son, Jesus Christ, And it is calling upon the name of the Lord. And it is recognizing that upon Calvary's cross, there Christ Jesus bore in full the penalty for our sin. And Christ Jesus, throughout his life upon this earth, lived perfectly, obeying God with everything he thought, everything he said, everything he did. And when we call upon his name, and we become one with him through faith, He becomes ours, and God makes Christ unto us all that is acceptable in his sight, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And God receives and welcomes and embraces us, not for our sake, but for Christ's sake alone. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that by your word, You would be working in our lives uh, this day according to your will. We pray that as we have turned to these verses and sought to understand them and apply them, uh, that you would be merciful in lending us help and support. We are so fickle, so prone to wander, so quickly to forget. And so we pray that your word would indeed be implanted deep, deep within We ask this for the furtherance of your kingdom. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.